So, Patty, mm-hmm. if I were to ask you to think about conservation and governments, what comes to mind? Uh, <laughs> well, I think maybe first I pout my lip like a sad face emoji or something and then uh, swear like a sailor. Sorry, mom. And um, think of just the huge, huge leaps backward that the Trump administration has done. Um, but also I think about the amazing work that people are doing because of that, like, say, the folks over at Protector Winners or the Sierra Club. For me, before we started working on this episode, what I thought about can basically be summarized as conflict. Uh So I thought about the push and pull between environmental groups and regulators or politicians who disagree with scientists. Mm -hmm. Basically, like you, my mind went to competing interests, right? Right. And that's probably because of a bunch of things that are specific to who I am. So the country I live in, the news I pay attention to, Mm -hmm. uh, the values I was raised with. Yeah, well, right, that makes sense to me. I mean, especially... I think if you're if you're thinking about the activities that are happening right now as a result of the current administration. Yeah, exactly. But even if I had asked that question of myself and then expanded my thinking globally, uh-huh. I would have said, okay, well, you need some governing body in place to manage conservation. Right, like you need A to have B, right? Mm-hmm. Like there needs yeah. to be something or someone to oversee everything because what? Otherwise, it's just like a free-for-all. Yeah, And I've read a lot of articles about land or antiquities being destroyed because of war or poor governance, but it turns out that my way of thinking needed some shaking up. Yeah, same, which is why I'm super excited about today's show. We're talking with Alex Dagan, scientist, conservationist, author, PhD, but he doesn't like to be called a doctor, and CEO of Conservation X Labs. It's an organization that looks for scalable and sustainable tech solutions for conservation. And Alex has this interesting idea about what conservation can do for countries. I believe that conservation is an important part of nation building, human security, and diplomacy. Conservation can do what? Okay, how could the protection of the land and resources help with that? Hang tight, pals. This one is going to expand your melon. I'm Patty O'Connell. And I'm Elizabeth Nakano. Welcome to Safety Third, a show about ideas and how we come to believe in them. I was always historically interested in international affairs as well as in conservation. I started actually being interested in conservation when I was nine years old. And I had this book on extinction that I bought for my allowance, which was something like $5 a week. So I had to go into debt to buy the book uh, to my parents. (laughs) And I still have that book. But it told me about the black-footed ferret and the California condor and the Florida key deer and the Florida panther. And... The fact that we had driven the passenger pigeon, a bird supposedly so numerous that the skies would darken for three days as their migrations would pass overhead, that we had driven that extinct. And the idea that we were driving things extinct was terrifying to me as a little kid. And so 
that really drove me into conservation. You know, we're in danger of losing a million species over the next few decades. Uh, we're in the middle of the insect apocalypse. We know that climate change is changing at unprecedented speeds and rearranging entire ecological systems. The speed and the scale of our solutions, which happen to be incremental, weren't matching the speed and the scale of the problem. I mean, conservation is a huge issue on Earth, period, right? So why why go to the Middle East? What sparked your interest <laughs> to go there, of all, of all the places? It does seem like an unusual choice. It totally but, does. Thank uh, you, for, there's a couple thank of you for acknowledging that, because it does seem like a very unusual choice. I came from a family that's international. I'm an immigrant myself. You know, so I've always had that interest in sort of foreign policy. And in fact, as an undergrad, I was a zoology and political science major. But it wasn't really until I started working on things like under the Obama administration, but also under the Bush administration with engagement across the Middle East, Arab-Israeli engagement over things like water that were critical to both nations, that I realized that science and conservation could actually provide the framework on which diplomacy could sit. Okay, pals, get ready for the Alex Dagan abridged resume. He was born in Iran and moved to the U.S. when he was two. Alex has degrees from Duke, the University of California, and the University of Chicago. That's where he got his Ph.D. Alex has worked as a legal advisor in Russia, a law clerk to the chief judge of the U.S. Court of International Trade, a conservation researcher in Madagascar, a special advisor for nonproliferation in Iraq, and he has worked for the U.S. Department of State. That's when he worked for Bush and Obama. Alex's work with the Department of State made waves in the conservation world. For example, one of his projects was to help create the Iraqi Virtual Science Library Initiative. It puts thousands of scientific journals online. His work caught the attention of a Wildlife Conservation Society scientist named Peter Zoller. Peter asked Alex to head up the organization's Afghanistan program. So, from 2006 to 2007, Alex worked in Kabul as the head of the Wildlife Conservation Society Afghanistan program. Alex refers to them as the WC. His extensive wildlife surveying formed the basis for determining whether conservation work, things like creating national parks, was possible in Afghanistan. When we landed at Kabul International Airport, it was not a great-looking airport. I think there are burned out buildings in Baltimore that probably looked a little bit nicer. <laughs> there were people demining the land next to the runway. And that kind of worried me. Yeah. Not something you, you normally see. But what was kind of extraordinary was just how fast Kabul was rebuilding, how fast the country was trying to rebuild and restore life. And that's, that's one of the things about war zones is they're incredibly resilient places. Back in the 1950s and 60s, Afghanistan was making big steps towards a more liberal and westernized society while still respecting tradition. Modern buildings sprang up in Kabul. Women were allowed to attend university and enter the workforce. New technology and money and weapons came in from the U.S. and from the Soviet Union. The country was even a pretty happening tourist destination for Westerners. But then, in the 1970s, coups, uprising, and the ultimate invasions by the USSR changed all that. 
Conflict, internal strife, and foreign involvement has been an almost constant in Afghanistan for the last 40 years. Which, to me, is the major reason why Alex's work there is so remarkable. I showed up in the country with $10,000 cash and no permission to work in the country. And we... (laughs) We, uh, we set up operations in what is best described a 1950s motel. The computer room became our computer room. I actually hired an entire staff from another NGO that was disbanding, just took the entire group, brought in a bunch of Afghan biologists and computer scientists, veterinarians, because you couldn't sometimes find biologists. And the work was fundamentally doing a whole series of things. It was doing these first iconic, deep, surveys of the wildlife in Afghanistan and wild lands. So the forests, the rangelands, it was the process of supporting the institutions, the Afghan institutions that were there to help manage the natural resources. So building up the capacity of the National Environmental Protection Agency and the Ministry of Agriculture, as well as the state and local officials. It was literally helping them create these national parks, get the support Uh, forum by organizing these community conservation committees that would be integral to actually having ownership over the park, ownership over the rules, and the management of the wildlife. Mm -hmm. The wildlife there is spectacular. If you went back to 30, 40 years ago, there were more cat species in Afghanistan than there is in sub-Saharan Africa. It is important habitat for globally, uh, species of global importance, things like the snow leopard, which we surveyed in Afghanistan, which WCS collared in Afghanistan, in which, you know, we found a much larger population that we actually thought would be there. A whole series of other species from the Marco Polo sheep to the Marhor to the Asiatic black bear. Uh, If you see Afghanistan in the movies, you would call it Khakistan, which means literally land of dust, right? But in fact, it is a place with the western end of the Himalayas with glaciers that are falling down cliff sides with these enormous sheep with snow leopards with at one point tigers, potentially lions, the Asiatic lions with cheetahs, with caracals, with wildcats, with animals from Europe, from Indo-Malaysia and from Africa, literally hyenas in Afghanistan, dense woodlands, red sandy deserts, pistachio savanna savannas it's spectacular and it is not what we see in the media we only see sort of desolation but in fact what you miss is just the remarkable beauty of the landscape and the remarkable beauty and resilience of the people as you can imagine alex did not have an easy job He had to juggle things like coordinating donors and governmental cooperation, bringing together lots and lots of money while getting the national government, the provincial government, the local government, and tons of elected officials to all play nice together. And he was also figuring out land management at the exact same time. How in the hell do you do this? Well, Alex came up with a hilarious fix. The short answer was lunch, a really, (laughs) really really delicious lunch. lunch. We had a magnificent cook. She would make this just spectacular mound of lamb and rice. And we created this committee. This was one of my favorite things because there were 30 organizations, none of which were really working together. 
that had some say over natural resources or some input into natural resources. Everyone was kind of doing their own thing. And you can imagine when you're dealing with a country that when we came into the country was looking at literacy rates of 20% and lower, much lower among women, for instance, a country that had you know significant infrastructure damage, difficulties with the rule of law, difficulties with the government processes, significant challenges of food security, corruption, underlying instability, conflict, issues with water. 70% of the people in Afghanistan, they were entirely dependent on those natural resources. And the majority of the people in Afghanistan, unlike many other places in the world, do not live in the cities, but that's where the majority of our aid was going to. We couldn't make people angry Right. And anytime you form a committee, all of a sudden people get pissed off. And so what we did is we created the the unofficial literally the title was something like the unofficial, unimportant conservation <laughs> coordinating committee for Afghanistan. It had like a couple of rules. Rule number one is you will get lunch and it will be a delicious lunch and you will get as much lunch as you want. And it's awesome. That is so good. Rule number two was that if you are not invited, you are invited. So anyone, people would call us up and they were mad not to be invited. And oh, I would wow. say the rule is if you're not invited, you're invited. So now you're invited. Rule number three was it had zero power whatsoever. People like, you can't do this. And I was like, we have zero power. Oh, all right. <laughs> like that would be the other. And then rule number four, which I thought was really important and actually kind of key to the whole thing besides the lunch, uh, was that we gave away all our data. So we spent a huge amount of time getting historical records of wildlife, collecting data, putting together reports, doing satellite analyses, and we would burn it on DVDs. And literally anyone who came to lunch got a DVD of you know, priceless data, data that, you know, we would have to contact natural history museums, scan in hundred year old records of Danish expeditions into the region, and we would give it all away. And then what we would do is we would tell everyone what we were doing. And then we'd turn to the next person next to us and we'd say, how about you guys? And the mere process of sort of using human behavior and peer pressure was really turned into a probably one of the most effective donor coordinating bodies I've had the pleasure of being in because everyone around the tables with their tummies full and their hands full of data would then start talking about what they were doing because they wanted to show off or they wanted to be part of it. And then as we would hear that, we would see where the conflicts were and people would be finding the solutions. And that was pretty incredible for me. That was that lunch was was a great innovation around what we were trying to do. Well, what was the response? Unbelievable support. We didn't have the problems of corruption that other people had with other projects in Afghanistan. I've never worked in a country where conservation worked better or was easier. And that's despite the landmines yeah. and everything else that we faced. I speak Farsi and, you know, I think that helped to some degree, although the way I speak Farsi, I sound like a stone California 
surfer, kind of like uh, Sean Penn in Fast Times at Ridgemont High. I'm dating myself <laughs> by saying that, but that's exactly what I sound like when I speak Farsi. So that works to break the ice. But when I describe what we were doing and I describe the wildlife, it was incredible that, that every level of government, parliamentarians, everyone went out of their way to try to help us. I mean, we also worked to frame it within within the respect of their culture. We looked up and cited provisions for the Quran that actually called for management of wildlands and wildlife, that, that this was a duty on to, to humans to be able to do. And, you know, I think that there's just a certain level of respect that you can provide the cultures in terms of what you're doing. This is the idea that, you know, conservation is by the people and with the people, not just imposed on the people. And I think that's been a huge problem in the past of conservation is that, you know, we tend to work against human behavior rather than than actually harness it for good. In 2009, Alex's work resulted in Afghanistan's first national park, Banda Amir. It's 250 miles west of Kabul, and it's over 70,000 acres. Just for reference, that's about a fourth of the size of Rocky Mountain National Park. What does the terrain look like? So if you took the Grand Canyon and you placed six turquoise blue lakes at the bottom of them, formed by the process that makes up stalactites and stalagmites, literally these dams created by super saturated calcium carbonate, right? So that shiny sort of stalactite look uh, that you have that not unlike mammoth hot springs at Yellowstone formed essentially these reservoirs, except instead of being a few inches tall, they're many meters tall, you know, 60 feet tall and above and creating these massive lakes. And then you put two partially carved Buddhas at the edge of the lake and you add Persian leopards and ibex at the top of all those cliffs, you add a dense layer of marine fossils and you have one of the most spectacular sites on our planet. And that's Afghanistan's first national park. Coming up after the break, how conservation can empower war-torn communities. I remember when we were watching the committee that was set up for Bandamir National Park. You know, we had these people who were elected by these villages that came in literally on foot, sometimes two hours away to participate in the meetings on the management of the park. And they were fearless, right? Like Afghans are. And as we watched them organize themselves, we gave trainings but we didn't actually participate or direct the meetings. They set up their own rules of how they would vote, how they would make decisions, how they would lead themselves. And watching that was like imagining yourself at the Constitutional Convention of the United States. And it was one of the most powerful things. It's still right now, it literally gives me shivers up my spine just watching the birth of democracy in these regions. And there's a power to that. And there's a power to managing natural resources by empowering the people to do so. So ultimately, we realized by building these management committees made up of local officials, you know, literally villagers elected by their villages to serve on these committees, 
people from the local governments, people from the provincial governments, and people from the national governments working together, we were literally building the rule of law. We were building democracy in such a way that was a little bit more effective than some of the other processes that people were using because it was, a, it was tied to something they actually realized. It was tied to something that they could give substance to as opposed to sort of these very theoretical images of how we think about democracy. These are some of the reasons why we, conservation, I don't think, was a luxury uh, for this country. It was actually essential to nation building, human security, uh, even diplomacy and development. In 2017, nearly 190,000 people visited Vandy Amir National Park. And of those visitors, more than 99% were Afghan citizens. How does that make you feel? Pretty good. <laughs> Pretty awesome, right? Because like, although I believe places like Yellowstone and Banda Amir and you know, many of the other national parks around the world belong to literally our planet, I see them as part of the patrimony, the natural heritage of the entire planet. First and foremost, you know, we were building national parks for Afghans, by Afghans, and yeah. and the fact that they visit it and they see it as theirs and they appreciate it and can experience it and enjoy it, that's great success because that means they own it. In 2019, Alex published a book about his time in Afghanistan. It's called The Snow Leopard Project and Other Adventures in War Zone Conservation. In it, Alex wrote that the restoration of wild Afghanistan of its flora and fauna was an essential part of post-war reconstruction, which to me is really, really interesting, but also um, how? Human society is disrupted. Practices that people have used for hundreds in this region, thousands of years are disrupted. Ways of managing that land are disrupted. The land tenure system being disrupted. The landscape itself is hugely disrupted. I referred to the region as the Bellocene, like its own geological era specific to Afghanistan, because you would dig down in the soil in places and just find bullet casings. There's a geological layer of bullets and these skeletons of armored personnel carriers and tanks and just massive destruction that is there. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, you also had a country that has been torn apart by being flooded with guns that had impact on the wildlife that's there. The restoration of that natural world helped us with that restoration of identity these national parks were actually, some of them were the former hunting reserves of the last king of Afghanistan. Some of these were actually gazetted to be national parks in 1979. They were moving toward the creation of them, and then the, the Soviets invaded. And then there was a civil war, and then the U.S. invaded. And us continuing that back on was really important. Um, and I think integral to the hope that it presented to the Afghan people about rebuilding their nation state. If you could get people cooperating over science or management of Marco Polo sheep, if you could get people talking about that, right, which crosses ethnicity 
and religion and politics and so many other things that maybe you could get him talking about the really other important issues that we need to address. Alex is quick to point out that conservation allows you to improve food security, better manage global health, better manage energy and water, improve governance and resilience. There's that little bit of Afghanistan. It looks like an arm that reaches out and touches China. Well, in this area, you have, it is the Himalayas, it is the Western, it's the Pamir Nat, it is this collision of the Tian Shan Mountains, the Hindu Kush, the Pamir Mountains, the Kunlun Mountains coming together in a giant geological traffic accident. Uh, and you have these two sort of unique communities of people. You have the Wahi, uh, who generally are not nomadic, they do some farming, but they're followers of a living god on earth, a guy named the Aga Khan. They're one of the great uh, schisms of Islam, but they're not the main group of Shia. And then you have this group called the Kyrgyz, who are nomadic Turkish speakers. Their entire wealth and their entire survival is based on livestock. And because of the disruption, the rangelands were getting overgrazed. That had two effects, right? One effect was the ungulates that are there, the prey base, the deer and the sheep and the goats do not have enough food to survive. And the effect of which is snow leopards then go after domestic livestock. The second thing that happens when you overgraze the rangelands is domestic animals don't have enough food to survive. And so the food security and how you manage that land better, which was one of the things we wanted to do, and not again, do it through the communities by educating the communities and working with the communities to better do that, allowed us to save both wildlife, prevent wildlife human conflict, and protect food security for the people in one of the hardest places in the world to live. That's an example of where conservation is not only beneficial, it's actually probably a necessity to survival. In 2014, Afghanistan's second national park was founded. It's called Wakhan Park, and it's huge, like 25% larger than Yellowstone huge. Along with the two national parks, Afghanistan now has a handful of protected areas, reserves, and sanctuaries. But this isn't just about making sure wild, beautiful land is preserved. Diplomacy used to be about geography and sovereignty and territory and place, to some extent over resources. But now the threats are over changes to those resources. The threats are to things like climate change and emerging pathogens and, you know, where those natural resources are so integral to people's lives that people tend toward collaboration and cooperation over conflict. I've worked on scientific cooperation over natural resources where we literally can have Palestinian and Israeli scientists working together to better manage water resources even while the conflict in Gaza and other places is raging on, we provide an opportunity for dialogue and op a platform for, for engagement and hope uh, that otherwise wouldn't be there. 
does the conservation work help provide some kind of framework or understanding of democracy? Does it break something down? Does it build something up? A hundred percent. You know, we had one moment where we had this amazing uh, governor and she would, under the Taliban, she would sneak into the country to set up for the teaching of women. If she had been caught, she would have been killed. So this was a woman who was so dedicated to helping her country. But there was one moment where we had gone through all these laws and regulations um, and structures and bureaucracies and we're setting up the basis of the fabric of the social contract for the management of this national park. And she pulled me aside and she said, let's just forget about all of this and just do what we think is right. And, you know, we had an incident earlier in the week where members of the Afghan security forces and police forces had been hunting some of the wildlife. And we pointed out that if you want the right to tell them to stop, then you need to put limits on yourself in terms of how we manage these natural resources, that the rule of law applies to everyone in the country. And that was kind of, that was a really, that we thought was an important breakthrough. Fundamentally, by managing these natural resources, by empowering the Afghans and supporting them, that helped us build democracy. We can build up walls through identifiers or influencing characteristics like ethnicity, religion, gender, language, culture, you know, sexual orientation, political leanings. Is there a set of values that can connect us within conservation, within the outdoor community? You know, humans are geared like psychologically, you know, for natural environments, for parks, for being outside. It literally is something that I think everyone everywhere can respect and not only respect, but need. So the protection of those natural environments are something that is geared in our own deep history within our genes and something that we can appreciate. There is, there is something absolutely majestic about a snow leopard or a Marco Polo sheep or Marhor, which looks like a twinned horned unicorn these animals are spectacular and you look at them and you're curious and you're filled with wonderment and you're, you look at places like the Pamir mountains and the Wahan and you look at the glaciers and you look at the, the cedar and the oak forests of uh, the Eastern forest complex of Afghanistan. And you look at places like Banda Amir and no matter who you are or where you're from, there's something magical about those places that we all share. You've been listening to Safety Third. Our guest today was Alex Dagan. And to learn more about what he's doing, Check out his Instagram at Alex Dagan or visit conservationxlabs.com. If you like today's show, then please spread the word. You know, Safety Third is kind of like a wet willy. It's for the year 
and it's really, really, really weird to give yourself a wet willy. So, snag your crew and put S3 in each other's ear holes. Tell your friends and fam about the show, and if you have an idea for a guest, send us an email at hello at safetythirdpodcast.com. You can find us on Instagram at safetythird underscore podcast and on the old interwebs at safetythirdpodcast.com. Safety Third is produced by Elizabeth Nakano. Cordelia Zars edited this episode. Additional production help from Andrew Logan. Music by my big brother, Brendan Kimchi Breath O'Connell. Art direction by Anya Miller-Berg. Fitz Cahal is our creative director. Becca Cahal is our executive producer. And I'm your host, Patty O'Connell. Okie dokie, my friends. Until next time, keep it tight, keep it loose, and remember, safety third. Thank you.